Chapter 19. Paris. Our target in Paris was a man called Christophe Fosque, a senior officer in the Police Nationale. He was, as it happens, totally corrupt. He'd received payments from Scorpia and in return had turned a blind eye to many of their operations in France. But recently he'd got greedy. He was demanding more payments and worse still, he'd been in secret talks with DGSE, the French Secret Service. He was planning a double cross and Scorpio had decided to make an example of him by taking him out. This was to be a punishment killing. It had to make headlines. However, for once, Scorpio had got their intelligence wrong. No sooner had we, had we arrived at Charles de Gaulle Airport than we were informed that Vosk was not in the city after all. He'd gone on a five-day training course, meaning that we had the entire week to ourselves. Hunter wasn't at all put out. We need a rest, he said, and since Scorpio's paying, we might as well check ourselves in somewhere decent. I can show you around Paris. I'm sure you'll like it. He booked us into the luxurious Hotel Georges V, close to the Champs-Élysées. It was far more than decent. In fact, I had never stayed anywhere like this. The hotel was all velvet curtains, chandeliers, thick carpets, tinkling pianos and massive flower displays. My bathroom was marble. The bath had gold taps. Everyone who stayed here was rich and they weren't afraid to show it. I wondered if Hunter had brought me here for a reason. Normally, we would have stayed somewhere more discreet and out of the way. But I suspected that he was testing me, throwing me into this gorgeous alien environment to see how I would cope. He spoke excellent French. Mine was rudimentary. He was in his late twenties and already well-travelled. I was 19. I think it amused him to see me dealing with the receptionists, the managers and the waiters in their stiff collars and black ties, trying to convince them that I had, I had as much right to be there as anyone, trying to convince myself. It was certainly true that we both deserved a rest. The journey into the rainforest and out again, the death of the commander, the shootout that had followed, our time in Iquitios, even the long flight back to Europe had exhausted us. And we both had to be in first-rate condition when we came up against Vosk. And if that meant eating the best food and waking up in a five-star luxury, I wasn't going to argue. We had adjoining rooms on the third floor and both spent the first 24 hours asleep. When I woke up, I ordered room service the biggest breakfast I had ever eaten, even though it was in the middle of the afternoon. I had a hot bath with the foam spilling over the edges. I sprawled on the bed and watched TV. They had English and Russian channels, but I forced myself to listen in French, trying to attune myself to the language. The next day, Hunter showed me the city. I had done more traveling in the past few weeks, Venice, New York, Peru, than I had in my entire life but I loved every minute of my time in Paris. A few of the things we did were obvious. We went up the Eiffel Tower. We visited Notre Dame. We strolled around the Louvre and stood in front of its most famous works of art. All this could have been boring. I've never been very interested in tourism, staring at things and taking photographs of them simply because they're there. But Hunter made it fun. He had stories and insights that brought everything to life. Standing in front of the Mona Lisa, he told me how it had once been stolen, that was back in 1911, and explained how he would set about stealing it now. 
He described how Notre Dame had been constructed, an incredible feat of engineering more than 800 years before. And he took me to many unexpected places, the sewers, the free flea market, the cemetery with its bizarre mausoleums and famous residents, the sculpture garden where Rodin had once lived. But what I enjoyed most was just walking the streets along the Seine, through the Latin Quarter, around the Marais. It was quite cold. Spring had still not quite arrived, but the sun was out and there was a sparkle in the air. We drifted in and out of coffee houses. We browsed in antique shops and bought clothes on the Avenue Montagne. We ate fantastic ice cream at Maison Bethlehem on the Ile Saint-Louis. Curiously, this was where the founder members of Scorpio had first come together. But perhaps wisely, there was no blue plaque to, commem to commemorate the event. We ate extremely well in restaurants that were empty of tourists. Hunter didn't like to spend a fortune on food and never ordered alcohol. He preferred grenadine, the red syrup he'd introduced me to in Venice. I drink it to this day. We never once discussed the business that had brought us here, but we were quietly preparing for it. At six o'clock every morning, we went on a two-hour run together. It was a spectacular circuit down the Champs-Élysées, through the Jardin de Tourier, and across the Seine. There was a pool and a gym at the hotel, and we swam and worked out for two hours or more. I sometimes wondered what people made of us. We could have been friends on holiday, or perhaps given our age difference, an older and a younger brother. That was how it felt sometimes. Hunter never referred back to our conversation in the jungle, although some of the things he had said remained in my mind. We'd arrived on a Monday. On the Thursday, Hunter received a note from the concierge as we were leaving the hotel and read it quickly without showing it to me. After that, I sensed that something had changed. We took the metro to Montmartre that day and walked around the narrow streets with all the artist studios and drank coffee in one of the squares. It was just warm enough to sit outside. By now, we were relaxed in each other's company, but I could tell that Hunter was still agitated. It was only when we reached the great white church of Sacré-Cœur with its astonishing views of Paris that he turned to me. I need to have some time on my own, he said. Do you mind? Of course not. I was surprised he even needed to ask. There's someone I have to meet, he went on. He was more uneasy than I have ever seen him. But I'm breaking the rules. We're both undercover. We're working. Do you understand what I'm saying? If Julia Rothman found out about this, she wouldn't be pleased. I won't tell her anything I said, and I meant it. I would never have betrayed Hunter. Thank you, he said. We can meet back at the hotel. I walked away, but I was still curious. The more I knew about Hunter, the more I got the feeling that there were so many things he wasn't telling me. So when I reached the street corner, I turned back. I wanted to know what he was going to do. And that was when I saw her. She was standing on the terrace in front of the main entrance of the church. There were quite a few tourists around, but she stood out because she was alone and pregnant. She was quite small, the French would say petite, with long fair hair and pale skin, wearing a loose baggy jacket with her hands tucked into her pockets. She was pretty. Hunter was walking towards her. She saw him and I saw her face light up with joy and she hurried over to him. And then the two of them were in each other's arms. A head was pressed against his chest. He was stroking her hair, two lovers on the steps of, on the steps of Sacré-Cœur. What could be more Parisian? 
I turned the corner and walked away. The next day, Vosk returned. He lived in the fifth arrondissement in a quiet, in a quiet street of, of flats and houses not far from the Parthenon, the elaborate church that had been modelled on a similar building in Rome and where many of the great and good of France were buried. Hunter had received a full briefing in an envelope sealed with a scorpion. I guessed it had been delivered to his hotel room by someone like Marcus, who had done the same for me in New York. The two of us went to a cafe on the Champs-Élysées. It might have seemed odd to discuss this sort of business in public place, but in fact it was safer to choose somewhere completely random. We could make sure we weren't being followed and we knew it couldn't be bugged. Bosk provided a very different challenge to the commander. He might be easier to reach, but he probably knew we were coming, so there was a good chance he had taken precautions. He would carry a gun. He could, protect, protect, he could expect protection from the French, French police. As far as they were concerned, he was one of them, a senior officer and a man to be respected. If he was gunned down in the street, there would be an immediate outcry. Ports and airports would be closed. We would find ourselves at the centre of an international manhunt. He lived alone. Hunter produced some photographs of his address. They had been provided by Scorpia and showed a ground floor apartment with glass doors and double height windows on the far side of a courtyard shared by two more flats. Although one of these was empty, the other was occupied by a young artist, a potential witness. An archway opened into the street. There was no other way in and an armed policeman, a gendarme, had been stationed in the little room that had once been the porter's lodge. To reach Vosk, we had to get past him. In all of our discussions, we called Vosk the cop, as always. It was easier to depersonalise him. On the Saturday, we watched him leave the flat and walk to his local supermarket two streets away. He was a short, bullish man in his late 40s. As we walked, he swung his fists and you could imagine him lashing out at anyone who got in his way. He was almost bald with a thick moustache that didn't quite stretch to the end of his lip. He was wearing an old-fashioned suit, but no tie. After he'd done his shopping, he stopped at a cafe for a cigar and a demi-pression of beer. Nobody had escorted him, and I thought it would be simple matter to shoot him where he sat. We could do it without being seen. But Hunter wasn't having any of it. That's not what Scorpio wants, he said. He has to be killed in his home. Why? You'll see. I didn't like the sound of that, but I knew better than to ask anything more. Our Paris holiday was over. Even the weather had changed. On Sunday morning it rained and the whole city seemed to be sulking, the water spitting off the pavements and forming puddles in the roads. This was the day when Vosk was going to die. If we wanted to find him alone in his flat, it made sense. Monday to Friday he'd be in his office, which was in situated inside the Interior Ministry. According to his file, most evenings he went out drinking, or ate with friends in cheap restaurants around the Gare Saint-Lazare. Sunday for him was dead time, in more than one sense. That mor morning, Annabel Finnan, the artist who lived next door to Vosk, received a telephone call from the town of Orleans, telling her that her elderly mother had been run over by a van and was unlikely to survive. This was untrue, but Annabel left at once. We were waiting in the street and saw her flag down a taxi. Then we moved forward. We were both wearing cheap suits, white shirts and black ties. We were carrying Bibles. 
the disguise had been Hunter's idea and it was a brilliant one. We had come as Jehovah's Witnesses. There had been real ones apparently working in the area and nobody would have noticed two more following in their wake. The gendarme in the porter's lodge saw us and dismissed us in the same instant. We were the last thing he needed on a wet Sunday morning. Two Bible bashers come to preach to him about the end of the world. Not here, the gendarme grunted. Thank you very much, my friends. We're not interested. But monsieur, Hunter said, just move along. Hunter was already holding his Bible at a strange angle and I saw his hand pressed down on the spine. There was a soft hissing sound and the gendarme jerked backwards and collapsed. The Bible must have been supplied by Gordon Ross all the way from Malagostro. It had fired a knockout dart. I could see the little tuft sticking out of the man's neck. And on the seventh day he rested, Hunter muttered, and I recognised the quotation from the second chapter of Genesis. The two of us moved into the office. Hunter had brought rope and tape with him. Tie him up, he said. We'll be gone long before he wakes up, but it's best not to take chances. I did as I was told, securely fastening his wrists and ankles and using the tape and a balled up handkerchief to gag his mouth. After everything Hunter had told me, I was a little surprised that he hadn't simply shot the policeman. Wouldn't that have been easier? But perhaps at the end of the day, and despite everything he'd said, he preferred not to take a life unless it really was necessary. With a gendarme hidden away, we walked across the courtyard, our Bibles in our hands. I thought we'd go straight to Vosk's door, but instead Hunter steered us over to the artist's flat and rang the bell there. It was a nice touch. She wasn't in, of course, but if Vosk happened to be watching out of his window, the fact that we were patiently waiting there would make us look completely innocent. We stood outside for a minute or two, ignoring the thin drizzle that was slanting down into the cobblestones. Hunter pretended to slip a note through the letterbox, then he went over to Vosk's place and rang the bell. He must have seen us coming and he didn't suspect a thing. He was already in a bad mood as he opened the door, wearing a vest and pants with a striped dressing gown falling off his shoulders. He hadn't shaved yet. Get the hell out of here, he snarled. I haven't... That was as far as he got. Hunter didn't use anything, didn't use another anaesthetic dart. He hit him very hard under the chin. It wasn't a killer blow, although it could have been. He caught the cop as he fell and dragged him into the apartment. I closed the door behind us. We were in. The flat was almost bare. The floor was uncarpeted, the furniture minimal. There was no pictures on the walls. It was private. Net curtains hung over the windows, and although there was a glass door leading into a tiny back garden, unusual for a Paris property, nobody could see in. A bedroom led off to one side. There was an open plan kitchen where, from the looks of it, Vosk hardly ever cooked anything much more than a boiled egg. Hunter had manhandled the cop across the floor and onto a wooden chair. Find something to tie him up with, he said. You should have some ties in the bedroom. If you can't find any, use a sheet off the bed. Tear it into strips. I was mystified. What were we doing? Our orders were to kill the man, not threaten or interrogate him. Why wasn't he already dead? But once again, I didn't argue. Bosk had quite a collection of ties. I took five of them from his wardrobe and used them to bind his arms and legs, keeping the last one to gag his mouth. Hunter said nothing while I worked. I'd already seen that intense concentration of his when, he, of his when we were in the jungle, but this time there was something else. I was aware that he had something in his mind and for some reason 
it made me afraid. He checked that the cop was secure, then went over to the sink, filled a glass of water and threw it into his face. The cop's eyes flickered open. I saw the jolt as he returned to consciousness and the fear as he took in his predicament. He began to struggle violently, rocking back and forth as if there was any chance of him breaking free. Hunter signalled to him to stop. The cop swore and shouted at him, but the words were muffled, incomprehensible behind the gag. Eventually, he stopped fighting. He could see it would do no good. I didn't dare speak. I wasn't even sure what language I would be expected to use. Hunter turned to me. You want to be an assassin, he said, speaking in Russian now. When you were in the jungle, you told me you killed some of the men who came after us. I'm not so sure about that. It was dark and I had a feeling I was the one who knocked over all of them. But that doesn't matter. You said you were ready to kill. I didn't believe you. Well, now's your chance to prove it. I want you to kill Vosk. I looked at him, then I turned to the cop. I'm not saying that the Frenchman had understood what we were saying. He was silent, gazing straight ahead of him, as if he was outraged, as if we had no right to be here. You want me to kill him, I said in Russian. Yes, with this. He held out a knife. He brought it with him and I stared at it with complete horror. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The knife was razor sharp. There could be no doubt of that. I'd never seen anything quite so evil, but it was tiny. The blade was more like an old-fashioned safety razor. It couldn't have been more than four or five centimetres long. That's crazy, I said. I was clinging to the thought that perhaps this was some sort of joke although there was no chance of that. Hunter was deadly serious. Give me a gun. I'll shoot him. That's not why I'm asking. Yes, Anne. This is meant to be a punishment killing. I want you to use the knife. He'd made me in front of the victim, even though he was speaking in Russian. There was no going back. Why? Why are you arguing? You know how we work. Do as you're told. He pressed the knife into my hand. It was terribly light barely more than a sliver of sharpened metal in a plastic handle. And at that moment, I understood the point of all of this. If I killed Vosk with this weapon, it would be slow and it would be painful. I would feel every cut that I made and it might take several cuts. This wasn't going to be just a quick stab to the heart. However I did it, I would end up drenched in the man's blood. A punishment killing for both of us. Something deep inside me rose to the surface. I was shocked, disgusted that he could behave this way. We'd just had five amazing days in Paris. In a way, they'd wiped out everything bad that had happened to me before. He'd been almost like a brother to me. Certainly he'd been my friend, and now suddenly he was utterly cold. From the way he was standing there, I could see that I meant nothing to him, and he was asking me to do something unspeakable. Butchery. And yet he was right. At the end of the day, it was a lesson I had to learn if I was going to do this work. Not every assassination would take place from the top of a building or the other side of a perimeter fence. I had to get my hands dirty. I examined the cop. He was struggling again, his stomach heaving underneath his vest, jerking the chair from side to side, whimpering. His whole face had gone red. He'd seen the knife. I balanced it in my hand, once again feeling the flimsy weight. Where was I to start? I suppose the only answer was to cut his throat. Gordon Ross had even given us a demonstration once, but he'd used a plastic dummy. You need to get on with it, Yassin, Hunter said. We haven't got all day. I can't. I'd spoken the words without even realising it. They'd simply slipped out of my mouth. Why can't you? Because I didn't want to answer. I couldn't explain. 
Busk might not be a good man. He was corrupt and he took bribes, but he was a man nonetheless, not a paper target. He was right here in front of me, terrified. I could see the sweat on his forehead and I could smell him. I just didn't have it in me to take his life and certainly not with his hideous, pathetic knife. Are you sure? I nodded, not trusting myself to speak. All right, go outside, wait for me. This time I did what I was told without questioning. If I'd stayed there a minute longer, I'd have been sick. As I opened the front door, I heard the soft thud of a bullet fired from a silenced pistol and knew that Hunter had taken care of matters himself. I was still holding the knife. I couldn't leave it behind. It was covered in forensic evidence that might lead the police to me. I carefully slid it into the top pocket of my jacket where it nestled, the blade over my heart. Hunter came out. Let's go, he said. He didn't seem angry. He showed no emotion at all. Walking back across the city, I told him my decision. I'm taking your advice, I said. I don't want to be an assassin. I'm leaving Paris. I'm not coming back to Rome. I'm going to disappear. I didn't give you that advice, Hunter said, but I think it's a good idea. Scorpio will find me. Go back to Russia, Yasan. It's a huge country. Russia is your first language and now you have skills. Find somewhere to hide and start again. Yes, I felt a sense of sadness and had to express it. I let you down, I said. No, you didn't. I'm glad it worked out this way. The moment I first saw you, I had a feeling you weren't suited to this sort of work and I'm pleased you've proved me right. Don't be like me, Yasin. Have a life. Start a family. Keep away from the shadows. Forget all this ever happened. We came to a bridge. I took out the knife and dropped it into the Seine. Then we walked on together, making our way back to the hotel. <laughs>